0: South Park is legendary for its one-week turnaround. Every week, a full episode of the show is pitched, scripted, recorded, animated, mixed and mastered out in time for broadcast. It was even the subject of a documentary called Six Days to Air, which tracked one hectic episode through production in April 2011. The doco primarily follows Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the creators of the show who are still heavily involved in every episode after more than two decades. Sometimes they'll already have an idea that gets fleshed out over the week. And sometimes, like in Six Days to Air, there's nothing. Just a blank page to a full show in six days. This one-week turnaround is only really possible because South Park cuts animation corners. Like, most characters don't have legs, so they don't really walk, which means time isn't lost animating something like walking, which wouldn't really contribute to any jokes. The show's tight turnaround also means there's no time to overthink ideas, as Trey Parker puts it in Six Days to Air.
1: I always feel like, wow, I wish I had another day with this show. That's the reason that there's so many episodes of South Park were able to get done is because there just is a deadline and you can't keep going. Because there'd be so many shows that I'm like, no, no, it's not ready yet, not ready. And I would have spent four weeks on one show. All you do is start second guessing yourself and rewriting stuff and it gets overthought and it would have been 5% better.
0: And in April 2008, Trey Parker and Matt Stone decided to turn their attention to the Writers' Guild of America with their episode, Canada on Strike. Canada on Strike is no man-bear pig. The premise is that Canada have gone on strike because, um, well, here's part of the show.
1: Uh, when you say Canada is on
2: strike, what exactly
1: do you mean? What do you think
2: it means? We're striking, buddy! No more! That's it! Until we get what we want!
1: who exactly are you to authorize this strike?
2: I'm Steven Abutman, leader of the WGA.
1: The WGA?
2: Yes, the World Canadian Bureau. What
1: exactly does Canada want? We want more money. More money from where?
2: Just more money, you know. Canada doesn't get enough money. Other countries have lots of money. We want, we want some of that money. How, how about the internet? The internet makes lots of money. So give us some of that money, yeah, give us internet money!
0: When their favourite TV show Terrence and Philip, goes into reruns because of the strike, the South Park Boys try to raise some money for Canada by making a viral video. So they remake What What in the Butt, it becomes a viral sensation, and then when they go to collect their money from the Department of Internet money, the waiting room is full of other viral internet characters and it all ends in a blood-soaked battle royale between now ancient memes. The boys then get a check for 10 million theoretical dollars, and they deliver it to the Canadians, who realize that they've lost millions during the strike and gotten nothing in return, leading Kyle to learn something.
2: I learned something today. We thought we could make money on the internet, but... While the internet is new and exciting for creative people, it hasn't matured as a distribution mechanism to the extent that one should trade real and immediate opportunities for income for the promise of future online revenue. It will be a few years before digital distribution of media on the internet can be monetized to an extent that necessitates content producers to forego their fair value in more traditional media. Yeah.
0: Trey Parker and Matt Stone are not members of the Writers Guild of America. While the WGA were on strike, Parker and Stone were working for two weeks, before South Park went on its scheduled winter break. Parker and Stone by this point were only spending about 20 weeks a year working on South Park, and most of the strike took place while they were off-air. But while they did work during the strike, that doesn't technically make them scabs, because the Writers Guild of America doesn't have jurisdiction over animation. Animation writers don't have the same contracts and minimums as writers in almost any other medium, And when the Writers Guild went on strike in 2007, expanding default WGA coverage to all animated productions was one of their demands. But as we discussed at the end of last episode, when the Directors Guild of America made their deal with the studios in early 2008, the WGA were politely but firmly told that they would have to drop animation and reality TV if they ever wanted to get a contract and end the strike. This is Striking Out, a deep dive into The Last Writer's Strike from the team behind Going Rogue. I'm Tansy Gardam and today we're talking about animation, why its writers aren't covered by the Writers Guild, why the Writers Guild tried to change that, and why they ultimately didn't succeed. Reality TV and animation are often bundled together when people talk about The Last Writer's Strike because the WGA wanted jurisdiction over both. But in terms of content and workflow, they're about as far apart as you can get in the entertainment industry. And while the WGA West president, Patrick Verone, saw organising reality TV as a strategic move, organising animation writers was a more personal battle. There is a foregone conclusion to this episode. The WGA did not get jurisdiction over animation writers in their 2008 contract. And they still don't have it today. But to understand why animation isn't covered by the Writers Guild, we need to go right back to the beginning. Traditional hand-drawn animation is painstaking, labor-intensive, and expensive. For every single frame, an animator draws individual frames of movement onto paper, and then they take that paper off their pegboard and hand it on to an inker, who puts a clear sheet of celluloid over the animator's drawings and copies the outlines of each image onto the celluloid in black ink. That piece of celluloid, or cell, then goes to a painter, who flips it over and paints all the colours in between the Inca's lines. So when she's done, you have a clean, single frame of whichever character or item is being animated. And I say she because painters and incas were historically almost always women. Anyway, once a cell has been inked and painted, it's then placed in front of a background, often alongside other characters or moving elements, all layered together in front of a multiplane camera, which then photographs all the elements together into a single frame of film. And you have to do all of that 24 times to make a single second of animation. So before all of that work starts, you wanna know that the story and images you're about to pour hours into actually works. Which brings us to storyboards. Storyboards are like blueprints for future animation. They're rough pencil drawings of what an artist thinks the final shot should look like. Storyboards capture key details like framing, composition, character expression, cuts, and camera movements. But because they're rough and quick, they're also a really good distillation of the essential elements of a shot, what really matters, what the audience is going to be drawn to, which all sounds very academic but they have a much more practical purpose. The idea is that you line them all up, pin them to a board in order, and then use them to pitch your story or sequence to the rest of the artists you're working with. And in early animation, there weren't scripts. There were just storyboards. Artists would sketch out a visual rough draft rather than writing a script and then other artists would listen to their pitches and adjust the visuals with their own boards, and then they'd lock off the timing and specifics of every shot in a sequence in storyboards before anything went to an animator. Which makes a lot of sense when you think about early animations like Looney Tunes and Mickey Mouse. There's little to no dialogue, it's all about what's happening visually on the screen, so there's not much point writing out a script when it's all going to come down to the visuals. And like most filmmaking processes, storyboarding developed organically over the years to save time and money. And story artist quickly became its own job, for people who specialised in developing the narrative and broader visual ideas of a story rather than animating specific characters or painting backgrounds. Think of it as the difference between an architect and a really good builder. The story artist designs the scenes, and then the animators come in and make them. And while animation is a complicated, labor-intensive process, storyboards just take time, paper, pencils, and creativity. If an idea doesn't work, it's much easier to fix it in storyboards than after it's been animated. And even after written screenplays started to be used in animation, storyboarding was still a crucial part of the animation process, because it turned the words on the page into visuals. And often, story artists would end up rewriting scenes to make them work visually. Here's director and story artist Chris Sanders, who wrote and directed Lilo and Stitch, talking on the Directing Animation podcast about how much needs to be changed between a written script and storyboards.
1: Being a story artist, mm-hmm. if you're doing a job, you do a certain amount of rewriting because when you get the pages from the script, they never translate directly. You always have to do some kind of adaptation, large or small. And I would get really frustrated back on Beauty and the Beast, and 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 when I worked on Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, um, and even Lion King, I'd get these pages, and I'm like, well, these don't work. Uh-huh. I need to, and I think like well, someday, someday when I write one of these, I'm I'm not going to have to go through this, right? <laughs> so fast forward to Lilo and Stitch, and now I'm sitting down with my pages that I wrote, right? And I'm bored. Yeah. It. I'm board uh-huh. My pages finally, and the first thing I thought was, well, this doesn't work.
0: Yeah. What, who wrote this? Like, this, <laughs> how this? Chris Sanders has a lot of other opinions about screenwriters entering animation without any animation experience, but that's for a different episode. What's really relevant here is that the importance of storyboards in scripting animation isn't just an industry standard. It's also part of labor law history. In the 1930s, the National Labor Relations Act was introduced, guaranteeing private sector employees the right to organize into trade unions. But when the Screenwriters Guild tried to collectively bargain for writers under this new act, the studios refused to hire guild writers and formed their own sham union called the Screenplaywrights. So the Screenwriters Guild took the studios to the brand spanking new National Labour Relations Board, and the NLRB sided with the screenwriters and basically told the studios to stop leaving the guild on red. And in its decision, The NLRB discussed screenwriting in terms of a studio purchasing a story, then turning it into a treatment, then a screenplay, and all of those steps involving a writer. But a year later, when the Screen Cartoonist Guild was formed and also wasn't recognised by the studios and also took them to the NLRB, the NLRB once again sided with the Guild, But in their decision, they described the animation writing process as much less formal, saying, quote, The idea for a story may originate with anyone. The director and the story man developed the idea into a story suitable for screen projection. So according to the National Labor Relations Board, live action screenplays were written, but the story for an animated film was developed by the director and story man. There were a couple of women working as story artists at this time, but they were in a real minority. Over the years, the Screenwriters Guild became the WGA and the Screen Cartoonists Guild became the Animation Guild, or IATSE Local 839. But even as animations became longer and more complicated and started incorporating a lot of dialogue, storyboards remained the main way they were written. The original Scooby-Doo series from 1969 doesn't have any credited writers, just a handful of story credits and a story director. And that continued to be the case on all Scooby-Doo series until Mystery Incorporated in 2010. Which means, technically, the first person to ever be credited as a writer on Scooby-Doo was James Gunn for the 2002 Scooby-Doo movie, But even as other animated shows started hiring writers and running writers' rooms in the 80s and 90s because of that history of story artists developing animated scripts, the Animation Guild were the ones who had jurisdiction over animation writers, not the WGA. We've spoken a lot this series about coverage and jurisdiction in the context of reality TV and new media, but quick refresher. This meant that the default contract for animation writers was negotiated by the Animation Guild, not the WGA. And there's a few reasons why this could be a good thing. Animation writing is often a different process to live-action writing, so you'll have story artists whose job blurs the line between writing and storyboarding, just like reality TV story producers blur the line between writing and producing. So if animation writers are represented by the Animation Guild, that could mean that their contract is more tailored to the specificities of animation writing. There might be a rate for storyboarding and pitching, as well as script drafts and weekly hours could be based around the more physically demanding job of drawing. The Animation Guild have done some pretty radical shit in their time. They did a lot of organising in the 30s and 40s, and you only need to look at the working conditions for animators in Japan to see how an ununionized animation workforce can be exploited. This is not an Anti-Animation Guild podcast. But in 2007, animation writers only made up about 9% of the Animation Guild. And the Animation Guild itself is about half the size of the WGA. So as a smaller guild with far fewer writers, it has less collective bargaining power when it comes to writer contracts. And as a result, contracts that are covered by the Animation Guild rather than the WGA are, for want of a better word, worse. First things first, Animation Guild contracts don't include writer residuals. If you write a half-hour episode of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, you get a check every time it's shown somewhere. But if you write a half-hour episode of Sabrina the Animated Series, you don't. Now, the Animation Guild is part of IATSE, and IATSE does collect residuals on behalf of all of its members because it represents a majority of crew on most productions. But it can't exactly split a few dollars 600 ways, so those residuals go into IATSE's collective health and pension plan. But like the WGA's health and pension plan, you have to work a certain amount to qualify for that health and pension plan which means that while WGA writers often use residuals to see them through periods of unemployment, if you're an animation writer, you need to still be working to access the healthcare that your work funds. This lack of residuals is also especially an issue in children's animation, because it goes through audience cycles. If most kids have a three-year SpongeBob phase, Nickelodeon can rerun the same episodes almost infinitely because there's essentially no audience burnout. Every day, somewhere in the world, a child is watching an old episode of Spongebob for the very first time. But even if an episode of Spongebob is shown every single day for 20 years, the writer of that episode won't really see a cent for it. Another issue with the Animation Guild covering writers is credits. Protecting credits was a big part of why the WGA was formed in the first place, to ensure writers got proper credit for their work, because prior to that, studio executives got to decide who got what credit, and they used that power in… the cool and normal way that studio executives always use power, I assume. Credit arbitration is a complicated process, and it's one that the Guild are still adjusting. In 2021, the WGA introduced a new writing credit called Additional Literary Material, which goes to writers who work on a film but don't necessarily meet the threshold for a story or screenplay credit. And they introduced this because in 2020, the WGA found there was at least one uncredited writer on a third of the films that they were determining credits for. The Additional Literary Material credit cannot be applied retroactively. But if it could, it would probably apply to Josh Zedimer on Quantum of Solace and Christopher McQuarrie and Scott Zed Burns on Rogue One. But it could not be applied to any animated film because writing credits on animated films and TV shows aren't protected by the WGA, so they still often come at the discretion of the studio or production company. Writing credits in animation are also complicated by the question of who really writes what There's this popular bit of film trivia that says the screenplay for Aladdin wasn't eligible for an Academy Award nomination because Robin Williams improvised so much of his role as the genie. This isn't true. While Williams did riff a lot in the booth, there's no contemporary evidence to suggest that this led to an Oscar snub, and no animated film had ever been nominated for a screenplay Oscar at the time. And Robin Williams is kind of beside the point here because the really big authorial changes on animated films happen long before a voice actor is in the booth. Because if one person writes a script and then another significantly changes it in the process of storyboarding, who deserves credit? And this is actually a really good argument for the Animation Guild to determine animation writing credits because it can represent both sides of that debate. But as it is, the Animation Guild can't really enforce credits the way that the WGA can. This means that, so far as I can tell, Chris Sanders is the only story artist ever to receive a screenplay credit on a major animated film for his work on Mulan.
1: I ended up writing enough of the movie that they granted me a writing credit at the end. Wow. That was something that was completely discretionary. The studio didn't have to do that. Um, So that that was my first writing credit.
0: Sanders shares that credit with Rita Shao, Philip Lezebnik, Raymond Singer, and Eugenia Bostwick-Singer, and Robert Sansucci also gets a story by credit. This is far more screenplay credits than the WGA allows. Chris Sanders worked hard for that screenplay credit. He was basically sleeping at the studio for most of Mulan's production. But he was given that credit by Disney. There are plenty of other story artists who've had just as much of an impact on animated films who have gone unrecognised. And even after Disney gave Sanders that credit, it was essentially decorative. It didn't earn him residuals or a higher paycheck. And when Mulan was remade in 2020, none of the original writers received any payment or even any credit. This is a total tangent, but it is insane. The live-action Mulan was covered by the WGA, but officially, it's not a remake of the animated film. The WGA lists it as based on the narrative poem The Ballad of Mulan, because the script was initially written completely separate to Disney. It was a spec script written by Lauren Hynek and Elizabeth Martin, based on the Mulan legend. Disney then bought that script and hired Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver to rewrite it, bringing it more in line with the animated film. Compared to other Disney remakes, Mulan takes a lot of liberties with the source material, but that's probably because it was originally written to not be a Disney remake. I haven't read Heineken Martin's script, but if I had to guess, I'd say that they added the Bird Witch and Mulan's sister, and probably the idea of Mulan as a Chi warrior who has the Force. But if you've heard of Heineken Martin's script before, it's probably because it reportedly had a European male hero who only decided to help the Imperial Army because he had the hots for Mulan. He was also apparently the one who defeated the film's villain, not Mulan. I do want to flag again that I haven't read this script, and this information comes second-hand from an open letter written by an anonymous Asian-American industry insider, although the details have been backed up by actors who also read the script. But that script was then rewritten by Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silva to hit all the major story beats of the animated film. The result is kind of uncanny. It feels like it's legally not Disney's Mulan while still being Disney's Mulan. But even though Heineck and Martin's script was reshaped in the image of the animated film, because that animated film wasn't covered by the Writers Guild, Lauren Heineck and Elizabeth Martin collect residuals for Mulan, while the writers of the animated film don't. Heineck and Martin also get a full title card in the film's closing credits, along with Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver. Once the credit roll starts, there is a fairly early credit that says the film was, quote, suggested by the narrative poem, The Ballad of Mulan. Eight minutes later, after all the VFX houses and where you can buy the soundtrack, there is some very small text that reads, The producers wish to acknowledge the animated screenplay by Rita Shao, Christopher Sanders, Phil Lezebnek, Raymond Singer and Eugenia Bostwick-Singer with the story by Robert DeSansuchi. This acknowledgement is also perilously close to a special thank you to the Turpan Municipal Bureau of Public Security, which manages the construction and policing of Uyghur detention camps. I know this is gonna sound really petty, but the Turpan Bureau of Public Security is thanked. The writers of the original film are acknowledged. But beyond credits and residuals and questions of storyboards versus screenplays, there is one other massive difference between writers represented by the Animation Guild and those covered by the Writers Guild of America. And that's the amount they get paid. The WGA's minimum basic agreements are made with the collective bargaining power of almost every screenwriter in America, and they use their numbers and the shows and films they write as leverage. But the Animation Guild is smaller. So just on numbers alone, the Animation Guild has less bargaining power. So to this day, Animation Guild writers earn about half as much as WGA writers. But some animated shows are covered by the WGA. While the Animation Guild is the default union for animation, the writers of an animated show can all choose collectively to be represented by the WGA and have the WGA negotiate their contract. It is a slightly risky strategy, it was the one used by the producers on America's Next Top Model so you can see if the production company doesn't want to play ball, they could potentially restructure the entire show to eliminate your job. Or, more likely, the company will just refuse to negotiate with the WGA, since the writers are already represented by the Animation Guild, and since it's the writers of one show, a strike won't have a huge impact on a multinational corporation, so the writers will usually cave first. But WGA coverage for animated shows became a going concern in the 90s, as writers who were already in the Writers Guild started working more in animation, And while they were still writing for a living, their work wasn't covered by the Guild. And this is what first got Patrick Verone into organising for the Writers Guild. Here's Verone telling his story to Tonya Barnes in 2008. It's a little long, but it's best to just get the whole story from him.
3: I got involved with the Guild. I mean, I've been a member since 87, but I really wasn't involved until the mid-90s when I started working in animation, as I said, and and my first uh, animated experience was on a show called The Critic with John Lovitz, which, you know, after, at that point, this was 94, so after about seven, eight years in the Guild, where all of the work that I had done earned me pension contributions, I had health insurance, and was getting residuals, and now I was working for a network primetime show with... People I had known for years, Mike Reese and Al Jean, who created the show and had worked on The Simpsons for at that point about five, six years, they created the show. They brought in a staff of writers, myself included, who had all worked in sitcoms or variety and all had guild credits and we're used to the guild benefits and here we are working on a non-guild show because of the history of animation at the time the simpsons wasn't covered by the guild either and king of the hill had yet to come along but when they their first two years or three years of existence they weren't covered by the guild and by the second season you know we were all getting to the point where we were our, our health coverage was lapsing and uh, our uh, you know the pension term you know you can't vest if you don't have coverage through a certain number of years and my wife had gotten pregnant and we were looking to have our first son and there I was without health insurance uh, even though I was you know working full time and and on a network primetime show and so at that point vowed that if there was a third season of The Critic we would organize it and we would get it covered. Well as it happens there wasn't a third season of The Critic and I went to work for uh, the Jim Henson company and did a, a Muppet show for two years which was covered and my guild service fell by the wayside but then in 1998 Fox ordered the uh, A season of of episodes of Futurama Which I went to work on Another Matt Granny show Another show that was going to be not covered At the same time they ordered Family Guy uh, In its first incarnation And uh, along with The Simpsons and King of the Hill All of the writers on those shows And there were almost 80 of us on those four shows uh, Were organized by the Guild To get those shows covered And the anecdote we heard at the time Was that uh, it went to Peter Chernin and, And they told him that the Simpsons writers Wanted health insurance And he said give it to them
0: By the way, that's the same Peter Chernin who was in charge of Fox in 2007, and who was heavily involved in negotiating the Directors Guild of America's contract during the writers' strike. The Fox animation deal was really a microcosm of collective bargaining. The Simpsons writers took the other three shows along with them and ensured that the writers of Futurama, King of the Hill, and Family Guy all also got a WGA contract, and the health insurance, credits, and higher minimum wage that it guaranteed them. But this wasn't the beginning of sweeping change across the entire animation industry. If anything, it created a system of haves and have-nots. So, kind of the opposite of how a union's meant to work. The writers on big shows had WGA healthcare and residuals, and with constant reruns of shows like The Simpsons, those residuals were a huge deal. Meanwhile, the writers on smaller shows were earning half as much on their paycheck, and they didn't see anything when their shows were reused. The writer's strike had an uneven effect on animation because of the WGA's uneven coverage of animation. The writers on Fox's animated shows walked off the job, but animation has a much longer production time than live action, with scripts locked off well in advance so they can be storyboarded and animated. This meant that even animated shows that were covered by the WGA were less affected by the strike than their live action counterparts. Season 19 of The Simpsons aired from September 2007 through to May 2008, with new episodes through the entirety of The Strike and Out the Other Side. Just one planned show wasn't produced. Family Guy, on the other hand, ran into The Strike. Season 6 was shortened to just 12 episodes, and since the show's creator and star Seth MacFarlane refused to do any work on the show during The Strike, Fox actually finished and aired two episodes without his sign-off which McFarlane warned at the time would affect his relationship with the broadcaster, although he still works with them today. And since McFarlane does half the voices on the show, my guess is that the episodes that Fox finished were already very close to done, and they probably would have finished and aired more if they could have. There is an obvious question. Why hadn't the Writers Guild tried to organize animation before The Simpsons? And why didn't they keep pushing for universal coverage afterwards? Why was it only in 2007 that this really became a thing for the Guild? Well, there's the complexities of animation writing that we've already covered and some more that we're going to get into, but there's also a pretty blunt answer offered by former president of the Animation Guild, Tom Sido. He says that animation just wasn't making enough money for the WGA to care until shows like The Simpsons showed up, and then the WGA picked up those shows and not others. It's an argument that other members of the Animation Guild have made, and it's not entirely wrong. But if you accept that premise, you then have to ask why the WGA didn't put more effort into covering animated films which were making bank through the 90s and were almost always written by WGA members on Animation Guild contracts. But when Patrick Verone was elected president of the WGA West in 2005, animation was a personal cause. He'd benefited from Futurama's WGA contract and he wanted to bring that sort of coverage and certainty to other animation writers. So he and the rest of the board pushed for jurisdiction over animation in their next contract. Reality TV and animation are often bundled together when people talk about the WGA's demands during that writer's strike, and I can understand why. The Guild wanted jurisdiction over both, and there were some other similarities too. Both were comparatively underpaid, and both had writers who didn't just write. But while animation does have some blurred lines around the role of a writer, if you ask most people, is an animated film scripted, they'd say, yeah, of course. So WGA coverage of animation was, on paper, a much easier sell than reality TV. Animation was clearly written, there was an obvious pay disparity, and some shows were already covered by the Writers Guild. But the shows that weren't covered by the WGA were already covered by the Animation Guild, which is part of IATSEE. So, by asking for jurisdiction over animation writers, the WGA were effectively asking to replace a default animation guild contract with a WGA one and replace default animation guild membership with WGA membership, which IATSE president Tom Short described as illegal and unethical poaching. And while IATSE might have had their sights set on organising reality TV, animation was already a part of their union. And in December 2007, in one of his many strongly worded statements, Tom Short said that, quote, Even if the AMPTP wanted to give the WGA jurisdiction over animation writers, they couldn't. It's not theirs to give. Those are IATSE members who've been part of our Internationale for over half a century. Tom Short was a staunch opponent of the WGA during the strike, and before it. After the top model strike ended in disaster, Tom Short had advised Patrick Verone and David Young to start negotiations with the studios in late 2006 and just get their new contract sorted before the current one expired. Verone and Young did not follow Short's advice because, at least according to Short, they were just hellbent on striking. And the bad blood just kept flowing from then. The WGA's initial strike rules, published in October 2007, prohibited any Writers Guild writers from working on animated feature films, which were usually written on Animation Guild contracts, not WGA. So Tom Short told the WGA he'd see them in court over this, but Patrick Verone argued that the WGA members would just be honoring a picket line by not working on animated features. Although, two days into the strike, the Writers Guild did concede that their members could write for animated films on Animation Guild contracts. Then, when the AMPTP basically blew up talks in December, Tom Short accused the Writers Guild of being responsible for the breakdown, saying, quote, "...unless and until the WGA leadership starts behaving responsibly, which is unlikely, not only wages, health insurance coverage, and pension benefits will be lost, Homes and businesses will be lost too. And all of this fire and brimstone led Nikki Fink from Deadline to ask why Tom Short wasn't also bitch-slapping the AMPTP. Her words, not mine. After all, the AMPTP were being just as reticent about negotiations as the WGA. And when Fink put that question to a source close to Short, apparently her source just said, that's a good question a really good question. Salacious implications aside, Tom Short had been president of IATSE for more than a decade when the writer's strike hit. During his tenure, he was both praised for his ability to work with the studios and accused of being in their pocket. And his biggest beef during the writer's strike was with the WGA West's executive director, David Young, who he saw as an inexperienced interloper who was putting the entire industry at risk for the thrill of it. But it was IATSE members who were out of work during the strike, and it was potential IATSE turf that the Writers Guild were eyeing off in reality TV, and established IATSE turf that would have been taken if the WGA was given default coverage of animation. And honestly, I think Tom Short was right to say that even if the AMPTP had wanted to give the Writers Guild jurisdiction over animation, it wasn't theirs to give. There were definitely mechanisms that could have been brought in over time to implement WGA coverage of animation, like establishing that any new shows and films by signatory companies had to be on a WGA contract. But what happened to existing shows? And existing members of the Animation Guild, who were part of one union and its health and pension fund and might not want to join another? Would each existing show take a vote on whether they'd be covered by the WGA or the Animation Guild? Because if you did that, you'd kind of open up Pandora's box. Studios and production companies prefer Animation Guild-repped writers because they're cheaper. So if there was an open voting system, writers could be pressured by their employer to pick the cheaper option or have their show canceled. But all of these questions, as we already know, are purely hypothetical because when the Directors Guild of America announced their new contract with the studios, it became the template for the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild's next agreements. And there were some wins in that contract, like jurisdiction over content made for the internet and distributors gross on paid internet downloads. But the DGA hadn't been as ambitious or as far-reaching in its proposals as the Writers Guild had when they went on strike. After the DGA deal was announced, Patrick Verone, David Young, and John Bowman from the Guild sat down with Bob Iger and Peter Chernin for a breakfast meeting to officially restart informal negotiations, and the CEOs made it clear that they would not accept any further distractions or deviations from the DGA's template. If the Writers Guild wanted a contract, their demands for jurisdiction over reality TV and animation had to go. The DGA's deal essentially forced the Writers Guild's hand, and turned the tide of the strike. And while many writers and writer-directors felt betrayed by the DGA, there was little that they could do. Michael Winship, the president of the WGA East, reflected in 2018 that the DGA's deal was a real low point in the strike, saying, quote, God bless them, they got a deal, but we felt strongly that they fell on our backs. Writer and director and returning champ of the podcast, Tony Gilroy, later said that he was disappointed and angry at the Directors Guild, and in retrospect he wished the WGA just kept pushing after the DGA announced their deal, and threatened to shut down the Academy Awards by picketing and refusing to let any writers work on the broadcast. This might sound like an idle or even petty threat, but the fate of the Oscars was a big question at this point in the strike, and on a more retaliatory note, The live broadcast of the Oscars was directed by Gil Cates, who'd been the chair of the Directors Guild's negotiating committee, and had been instrumental in securing the DGA's deal. The Oscar nominees for that year were announced on January 22nd, the same morning as that breakfast meeting between the WGA and the CEOs. One of the nominees for Best Original Screenplay and Best Director was Tony Gilroy. He says he would have been willing not to go. But not everyone shared Gilroy's view. Akiva Goldsman, the writer of A Beautiful Mind, later said that by this point, the emotional fuel for the strike had started to outpace the potential gains. Other WGA members took the DGA's deal as a good sign and urged the Writers Guild to take what the directors had secured and not push any further. Former WGA West president, John Wells, had advised the DGA on the terms they'd need to get in the contract if they wanted to set a pattern that the writers could live with. And now that the DGA had secured those terms, Wells had to hold up his end of the bargain and publicly endorse the deal. So he wrote a detailed positive analysis of it in an email to a friend who he knew would forward it to everyone in town. Wells emphasised the DGA's rate on paid downloads in particular, saying, quote, This DGA deal doubles our much-hated home video slash DVD, a rate that we have tried to improve on for over 22 years, without success. 22 years! As recently as a few weeks ago, the companies were still saying they would never, ever raise this rate. This is a huge, historic victory for everyone. Well's email ended up being republished on The Artful Writer, which was the blog of Craig Mazin, who would later create both Chernobyl and The Last of Us for HBO, but at the time was best known for writing Scary Movie 3. Mazin encouraged other writers to email the WGA, asking for the same deal as the directors. And the week before, Mazin had warned that, quote, if a deal comes out this week and we have people sending signed letters to our union demanding that we accept it, and if we have union leaders firing RPGs off in the press about how it's a cave and a sellout, then we might as well just stop pretending we're in the business of collectively bargaining for employees, strap on some Lycra tights and convert ourselves into an extreme fighting league. Craig Mason had no need to worry about buying Lycra. According to Cynthia Littleton's book TV on Strike, David Young was always pragmatic about the Writers Guild's position and its vulnerabilities. Once the DGA reached its deal with the studios, he knew the strike was coming to an end. And to the surprise of the CEOs, who'd all assumed he was an ideologue, Young knew when to switch from war footing to diplomacy. As Young himself said in February 2008,
1: There comes a time in any strike where it's time to settle. And that time is when the pressure is greatest on both sides. Um, It was going to be a huge issue for the industry to lose the Oscars, to lose this television season, to lose potentially the next television season.
0: There wasn't really equal pressure on both sides, though. Sure, the Oscars were at risk, and pilot season for network TV was starting to come into question, but the Writers Guild were facing pressure from the DGA, the studios, IATSE, and their own members. And when negotiations began again, after the DGA's agreement, the writers were the ones who had to compromise, not the studios. And so, on the 22nd of January, 2008, the same day that informal talks restarted with that breakfast meeting, the WGA sent out a letter to its members explaining that they were once again bargaining with the studios and that, quote, in order to make absolutely clear our commitment to bringing a speedy conclusion to negotiations, we have decided to withdraw our proposals on reality and animation. Here's Patrick Verone on that decision three weeks after it was made.
3: Uh, giving up animation reality was a was a heartbreaking thing for me personally. It was obviously very important to many of our members, but it was more important that we uh, make a deal that benefited the, the, the membership, the town as a whole, that got people back to work uh, and that, that solved the biggest problems in new media. Uh, I think among other things that, that, that brought this to a head were the involvement of the CEOs.
0: When the Writers Guild went back into negotiations, the AMPTP were purely decorative. It was Disney's Bob Iger and Fox's Peter Chernin who were leading the talks for the studios. The WGA also brought in Alan Wertheimer, a well-known and well-respected entertainment lawyer who'd helped David Letterman's company, Worldwide Pants, get an interim agreement with the Guild several weeks earlier. We discussed another one of these interim deals with United Artists way back in Episode 2. It was the whole apples for $10, apples for $7 thing. The World Wide Pants interim agreement had allowed the writers of Letterman and Craig Ferguson's Late Late Show to return to work, and it had been a bit of a PR coup for the WGA, so Wertheimer became grease to the negotiation wheels. He had a good relationship with the WGA, thanks to World Wide Pants, and a good relationship with the CEOs, thanks to decades of representing top-tier talent. The talks that came after the Director's Guild's deal were not the chilly diplomatic meetings from early in the strike they stayed informal. On the 25th of January, for example, everyone just met at Wertheimer's house and talked through online streaming compensation over sandwiches. Wertheimer then translated the discussion and informal agreements into legal language and talked to the AMPTP's lawyers to draft up the contract. And while Iger and Chernin had initially said there would be no deviations from the DGA's deal, over the next two weeks, they softened a little. The Writers Guild got some new formulas for online streaming, but then after successfully pitching that to the CEOs, the Writers Guild tried to push for a shorter promotional streaming window. The DGA's deal had 17 days of free streaming of any show for broadcasters, but the Writers Guild wanted to bring that down to seven. But Peter Chernin had been thinking about how nice it would be to go to the Super Bowl that weekend without having to worry about the strike. So when the writers brought up promotional streaming windows, he got snappy. He told the WGA he wasn't a professional nitpicker and left the room. When he finally came back, the writers presented a different proposal, one which wouldn't be a deal breaker and wouldn't extend negotiations by another day. The writers wanted a guarantee that when shows went back into production after the strike, all of their writers would be rehired, on the same pay they'd been on when the strike began. This guarantee was designed to protect striking writers against reprisals from their employers, and it was also something that the companies were probably going to have to do anyway to get their shows up and running again. Peter Chernin had said he wasn't a professional nitpicker, and there wasn't much point nitpicking over this. By 6 p.m. on February 1st, 2008, the deal was sealed with a handshake. The lawyers would spend another 10 days ironing out the details and wording of the contract, But the tentative deal was announced a week later on the 9th of February. And even when he announced the contract, Patrick Verone didn't shy away from the biggest loss they'd had to take to get a deal done.
3: We had three goals coming into this negotiation. The first was jurisdiction in new media. We achieved that goal with an agreement that says that any new media content written by our members (laughs) or spun off from existing guild-covered programming is covered by our contract with full benefits and separated rights. Our second goal was reuse in new media. We achieved that goal. In this agreement, which bases all reuses on a distributor's gross formula so that when they get paid, we get paid. This is the first time in our history that a new delivery system pays on a residual formula that is superior to the prior existing system. Our third goal was one which we did not achieve, namely the shoring up of our existing coverage and entertainment through the expansion of jurisdiction in animation, reality television and other genres where writers create content and do not receive the benefits that we expect or that they deserve. For those of us who are in this fight to achieve that goal, we fight on.
0: Three days later, the members of the Writers Guild of America East and West voted overwhelmingly to approve the new contract and end the strike. Most shows took a couple of months to get back up and running, but Saturday Night Live was back on the 24th of February with Tina Fey hosting.
3: But the strike was very important to the future of our industry, and I am proud to be able to tell you tonight that the Writers Guild of America has negotiated a deal with the studios that would raise the rate of writers' compensation for ad-supported electronic sell-through downloads from a flat rate of $600 for 26 weeks per 100,000 downloads to a percentage of 0.036% of the distributors' gross of any ad revenue generated by said streaming after an initial window of 17 days starting in three years. So, yeah, I kind of feel like
0: Of course, this is a comic over-explanation. Ad-supported streaming and electronic sell-through are different things with different rates, the 0.36% of distributors' gross only applied to electronic sales of less than 100,000 units, over that it was 0.7, and the percentage rate on streaming applied after two years, not three. But all up, I think Tina Fey does a great impression of me. Five and a half weeks after that SNL, Comedy Central aired the South Park episode Canada on Strike. Already there was a very pervasive public distortion of the purpose of the strike, framing the entire thing around the internet and new media. And like I said in our episode on The Office, the Writers Guild kind of wanted the strike to be remembered for the internet, because that was where they won, or really where the DGA won.
2: I learned something today. We thought we could make money on the internet, but... While the internet is new and exciting for creative people, it hasn't matured as a distribution mechanism to the extent that one should trade real and immediate opportunities for income for the promise of future online revenue.
0: Canada on Strike is a messy, confusing episode of TV for those who don't know much about the writers' strike and also for those who know too much. And you could say it's the exact same joke as Tina Fey's SNL bit, just with the opposite agenda. But Fey's bit was done 12 days after the strike ended, on one of the first shows to return to air. Canada on Strike wasn't just two months too late, it was also the fourth episode of South Park since the strike had ended. Relevance had gone out the window by this point, especially on a show with a one-week turnaround. And it's not just me saying this, this was picked up in reviews from the time. Canada on Strike got a big thumbs up from Josh Modell at the AV Club, but even while declaring the episode a stone classic, his words, not mine, Modell said that that was in spite of some square-peg round-hole jokes about the Riders Guild Strike. IGN's Travis Pickett gave Canada on Strike a 7.6 out of 10, but also picked up on Kyle's I Learned Something Today monologue, saying, quote, While this is delivered in a humorous way with the traditional piano music in the background, it seems to be missing the point. The entire rationale for the strike, from the beginning, was to get ahead of the issue of the internet before writers were left out or given a bad deal, as they were with home video rentals and sales. Beth Comstock, the president of Integrated Media for NBC Universal, told investors her company expected digital revenue to reach $1 billion in 2008. That's not theoretical money, that's very real money, and this is when the internet hasn't matured as a distribution mechanism. The question wasn't whether or not the stakes were legitimate, it was simply a matter of whether to fight now or later. But here's the kicker when it comes to Canada on strike. In August 2007, Trey Parker and Matt Stone's contract with Comedy Central was up for renewal, and as the talent behind the network's most lucrative franchise, they could basically ask for anything they wanted and what they asked for was a concentrated official online presence for South Park and 50% of the ad revenue it generated. Trey Parker and Matt Stone secured new media revenue before the writers' strike. And during negotiations, the Writers Guild's biggest blue sky proposal was that writers would get 2.5% of ad revenue from streaming. Parker and Stone got 50. And I'm not dissing them for that. They spent 10 years building one of the biggest shows on TV. And when contracts needed to be negotiated, they had leverage. But it does make Kyle's speech about the internet being an unknown distribution medium ring a bit hollow.
2: It will be a few years before digital distribution of media on the internet can be monetized to an extent that necessitates content producers to forego their fair value in more traditional media.
0: Yeah. To be fair to Parker & Stone, they did not forego their fair value in more traditional media to get 50% of online ad revenue. They got Viacom to pay to set the whole thing up, and their new contract in 2007 included other, more traditional media revenue sources. Once you factor in their increased cut of merchandising, DVDs and international sales as well as a substantial pay rise, Parker & Stone's 2007 contract was worth about $75 over four years. But South Park was the exception, not the rule. And even in all of the talk around Canada on Strike and its engagement with the Writers' Strike, no one mentioned that one of the WGA's key proposals had been a better deal for animation writers. That had already been forgotten. Even today, only a select group of animated TV shows are covered by the Writers Guild of America, South Park is obviously not one of them, but the majority are adult skewing shows like Big Mouth, BoJack Horseman, and Bob's Burgers. Coverage is still done on a show-by-show basis, usually only after a show has already become successful, or in some cases when it's set up by an established showrunner who insists on WGA coverage for the writers. Matt Groening's shows are almost always covered by the WGA, but even that doesn't always cut it. Raphael Bob-Waksberg, the creator of BoJack Horseman, walked away from a show that he had developed when the network refused to give the writers a WGA contract, and the associated higher wage. In 2022, there was a renewed push for Writers Guild coverage of animated shows, with 1,500 WGA members signing a pledge and refusing to work on animated projects without a WGA contract. The pledge was set up by the Writers Guild's Animation Writers Organizing Committee, or AWOC, who offer support and assistance to any animation writers trying to get Guild coverage on their shows. AWOC is co-chaired by Simpsons veteran Mike Scully, American Dads David A. Goodman, and Patrick Verone. Verone served the rest of his two-year term as president of the WGA West, but he didn't run again in 2009. He was succeeded by John Wells who had previously been president from 1999 to 2001 and who had assisted with and endorsed the DGA's deal during the strike. Verone did run again for the presidency in 2011, but he was beaten pretty soundly by Well's chosen successor, Christopher Kayser. Varone is still a writer. He's currently working on the reboot of Futurama, which I think is the fourth time that show has been brought back from the dead. In his spare time, Patrick Varone makes and hand paints plastic minifigs of American presidents and sells them on eBay. He has been doing this for more than 20 years. Patrick Varone is also still active in the Writers Guild. As well as the Animation Writers Organizing Committee, he's on the negotiating committee for the 2023 contract and he's also been out on the picket lines for the past few weeks. Here he is on May 5th of this year as part of Deadline's Why I'm Striking series, and apologies for the sound quality, it's a video from a phone.
3: I strike for the future, and the future then is now, and what we got what we got then, we're living through it now, and what, we get, what we're gonna get now, we'll live through it in the future.
0: The future was also on Varone's mind back in 2008 when the WGA's tentative contract was announced.
3: Since we began negotiations in July, we've been saying if they get paid, we get paid. This contract makes that a reality. This is the best deal this guild has bargained for in 30 years after the most successful strike this guild has waged in 35 years. It is not all that we hoped for, and it is not all we deserve. But as I told our members, this strike was about the future and this deal assures for us and for future generations of writers a share in the future.
0: So next time on the last episode of Striking Out, we're going to talk about the future, the future of content of the Internet and of the Writers Guild, both in 2008 and now. And to do that, we are going to focus in on a show that was hailed as the future of entertainment in 2008 and was, in retrospect, the most 2008 thing ever made. Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. Striking Out is a new season of Going Rogue written and presented by Tansy Garden, with editorial assistance from Charles O'Grady and Christian Byers. Our music is by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech and Shane Ivers from Silverman Sound Studios. And our logo uses a photo by Annika Mickelson. You can follow the show on Twitter at going Rogue underscore pod and you can follow me at Tansy Clipboard.